your Bibles to the book of Colossians, and our text today will be found in verses 21 through 23. And what I'm going to do, I think it's important, I'm going to reread verse 15 through 20. The last time we were in Colossians, that was our passage that we focused on. And so we will continue to do so, um, so that you have a full context and understanding of how the passage we're focused on today fits in with the entire um, context. So our, our passage will be 21 through 23, but I'm beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, our passage for today, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, which I, Paul, became a minister. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this privilege and honor to sit under the ministry of your word. The Lord, it is your word. You have inspired it. And you speak through the word to us. And now I ask, O oh Lord, that you'd open our hearts and minds, that we would behold wondrous things from you. I pray for my own mind, my own lips, that you would anoint them through your Holy Spirit, that as I speak, you would carry me along and use me as a vessel of honor to proclaim your truth. And more importantly, Lord, that we would be changed, Father, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word and that it would transform our, our view of you, that we'd have a greater vision for the gospel and a greater love for the call that you called us and a desire to follow, carry it out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's, um, it's quite common these days that people divorce. Divorce is, um, is very common. So much so that I, I find that it's unusual when you, you meet people that their parents are actually still together. Like if you hear someone who's married 20, 30 years, what? Like that's unusual. It's a very uncommon thing today. Majority of people have, have divorced and remarried. Um, and, and although we know that that is God's original plan for marriage to be uh, together for better, for worse, for keeps, uh, sadly, the reality of life is that doesn't always happen. Marriage is tough. Marriage is tough, especially in this stage of age. Uh, men and women are very much different today, and societal norms are different, and, and even the church has been challenged. 
But today's sermon is not on divorce. It's not about a divorce between a husband and wife, but it's meant to set us an example because the real issue that I want to talk about, the real relationship is between man and God. You see, the dynamics, however, of marriage greatly uh, uh, influence and, and show us an example of our relationship with God. Christ said that himself in Ephesians 5. So why do divorces happen then? Why do divorces happen? Well, well, it happens for, for a strong reason. That's because two people come together, they fall in love, and they have a lot in common, but then, but then as that love dissipates, um, they grow apart. They, they go different ways. Selfishness, pride um, have a lot to do with it. But essentially, uh, two people who are once on the same page go different directions in life. Their, their interests diverge. Their values change. Um, and uh, their careers may take different paths. And as a result, conflict arises. And when conflict arises, it results in destructive arguments and tearing down one another. If those differences cannot be mended or compromised or some common ground felt, then the, the, the relationship further breaks. It, it, it demolishes. The heart hardens. Uh, two people who were once together find themselves alienated. I chose that word carefully. Someone could be married, sleep in the same bed, and live under the same roof, but yet feel all alone. They're alienated. And that's what happens when people are in a conflict, when people uh, are at war with each other. It tears people apart, and you become, uh, you become alone. You feel alone. You live alone. And although you may be in a married situation, you could be alienated from the life of that family. And this is usually, at this point, communication ceases, affection cease, and estrangement takes place, separation results, and ultimately divorce. Why does this happen? Very simple. Because we live in a sin-cursed world, and sin leaves us broken people. We're broken people living in a broken world, and when we try to make something work, it, it's very difficult, and it, and it challenges us to find the best of ourselves, uh, to sacrifice, to compromise, to think of our spouse more than ourselves. And that's not always easy, because by nature, we're very self-serving. We're very selfish. But you see, although divorce can be ugly, so ugly, in fact, that people say experiencing a divorce is like, is like experiencing a death in the family. There's, there's a sense of mourning, of loss. But the greatest relational problem we have, friends, today is with God. You see, we were created in the image of God. We were created and designed to have a relationship with God. But sin broke that relationship too. In fact, it was broken from the day we were born. Scripture tells us in Psalm 58.3 that we have been estranged from the womb. And so that alienation took place from the dairy day we were born. And, and, and it's because of the sin nature. It's because of original sin that's been imputed to us through our parents, Adam and Eve. And so all religions are simply an attempt to answer the question, well, how can I be reconciled with God? How can I get back to a relationship with God? I think all religions acknowledge that sin has come and, 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 and broken that relationship. Then the question is, how do we get back? Well, most religions all have in common one thing. They tell you, the attempt to answer that is they tell you what you could do to get, get right with God, how you can achieve, how you can reconcile your relationship with God. 
But the gospel tells us that we're all helpless. The gospel tells us there's nothing we could do. It's that God has done it all, that Christ has done it all. And that's precisely what our text says here. It says in verse 19, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, that is Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is Jesus Christ who makes peace. It is Jesus Christ who reconciles. It is Jesus Christ who provides the way that we can have a relationship with God once again. That brings me to today's message because today's message takes us from the lofty grandeur that we ascended when we looked at verses 15 through 20 in the exaltation of who Christ is. And and verse 21 brings us right back to earth and to you. Right? We go from Christ, who is the, the, the image of the invisible God, the head of the church, and now and you. So the question is, how does the exaltation of Christ and Christ's sovereign majesty and his reconciling, reconciling power relate to us? How does it affect us? And Paul, like he does in all of his letters, contrasts what, what our life was like before and what our life is like now, a before and after. Right? We usually say as Christians what our life was B.C., before Christ. And now we know what our life is after Christ. Right? We, there's, a new, there's a new creation. We once were dead in sins and trespasses. We're now alive in Christ. We once were in darkness. We now are in the light. I once was blind, but now I see. There is a before and there's an after. And so Paul presents this before and after to remind us of the work of Christ and how it affects us. He says in verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death. So we see that now we are reconciled, but at one time, our life was much different. So I have four points to my sermon today. I want to look at what our life was like before Christ, what it is now, where we're heading, and finally, what part do we play in this? Number one, our lives before Christ. Now, Paul gives a very simple description here. He says in, in, in three simple phrases that we were A, alienated, B, hostile in mind, and C, doing evil deeds. Uh, these three aspects here characterize the life the, of the natural man apart from Jesus Christ, the, the person in whom original sin has its full influence and power in. And so the first thing we want to look at is alienation. I go back to this illustration of marriage Because when there is a broken relationship, when two parties cannot get along, when two parties are at war with each other, they they alienate from each other. They live separate lives. And that's precisely what the word alienation means. It means to be alone. It means to be separate. It means to be estranged. And it's an awful feeling. We may feel alienated when we're excluded from certain events or or excluded from or, or made to feel alone by other people. Um, and, or that we don't fit in. But this type of alienation that Paul is describing here is not just any alienation. It, it's a spiritual alienation, and it goes back to the Garden of Eden. This alienation he's talking about is a result of original sin. Now, remember back in Genesis 3-7, God warned that the day they eat of the fruit that their eyes would be open, and that's precisely what happened. Their eyes were open. They knew they were naked, And in chapter 3, verse 8, it says they hid from the presence of God. That was the result of of sin. So when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, indeed their eyes were opened and they knew good from evil. But there was also a sense of shame and guilt that came in and that alienated them from the presence of God. 
See, Adam became aware of, of, of sin. He became aware of what he had done. And this brought about and wrought what we call spiritual death in his soul. He didn't die physically immediately. God said, surely in the day you eat of it, you will die. Well, physical death was delayed for 900 years by his grace, but spiritual death occurred immediately. And that resulted in a broken, fractured relationship between Adam and God. We are told in the scripture that Adam and God used to walk in the garden in the cool of the day every day. There was communion, there was fellowship, and man was created for that very purpose. We were created to have a relationship with God. We were created to commune with God. We were created to walk in the cool of day with him. We are social beings. We're created to have a relationship with God and with other people. And when sin comes into the picture, it ruins all of those relationships. And so alienation begins. And, and that's exactly what Isaiah 59.2 tells us, by the way. Isaiah 59.2 tells us that our sins have made a separation between us and God. It makes a separation. And this separation or estrangement is illustrated by the fact that Adam hid from God. Now, I want you to think about it, right? Because often we go through life and we say, where is God? Where is God? We go through the valley of the shadow of death and we feel God is hiding his presence. We go through a difficult time. We feel, where is God? There are many unbelievers out there who are searching for God. Why is God hiding from me? But the reality is it's not God who is hiding from us. God has revealed himself in plain sight through all of natural revelation and special revelation. It is we who are hiding from God. It is we who, like our ancestor Adam, are running and hiding from God, and we've been doing so ever since. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1 that, that, that darkness uh, it, it cannot be overcome, cannot overcome light, but light overcomes darkness, and tells us that people know their deeds are evil, and they hide in the darkness. They run from God. And so we see that the natural state of man is alienated from God, separated from God. The second aspect of natural man apart from God is hostile in mind. Now this term hostile means to be at war, to be an enmity, and the mind here, the word mind here in the original language speaks about a mindset. It's the way we think about life. It's the way we think about God. And so what the scripture here is telling us is that the natural state of man is to be an enmity with God. We, we, we don't like God. In fact, our hearts are hostile towards him. We're at war with him. It's a mindset. Uh, Romans 8, 7 captures this when it says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now, let me just be clear. I mean, you, you talk to the average person and you say, do you believe in God? Do you, do you love God? And the average person will say, yes, of course. But it's based on a very limited understanding of who God is. Uh, the more we understand who God is, as revealed in scripture as the biblical God, the more that will increase a hostility and attention of the person towards God. Make no mistake about it. People are not apathetic or neutral when it comes to God or the claims of Christ. People may speak of a supreme being and whose existence they believe, but when it comes to the true God of the Bible, the God of holiness and justice, of supremacy, hostility dominates the mind and the heart. Well, if you have a hostile mind, it's going to carry it with hostile deeds, right? What you think is what you do. And so doing evil deeds, just as a man can produce the fruitful works in the spirit, man produces evil deeds, works of the flesh. So our entire life is bound up and characterized by evil deeds, evil deeds. What is sin? Sin is the transgressing of God's law. 
It's when we do what we know we shouldn't do and don't do what we should. It is, it is, it is the breaking of God's commandments. And it comes naturally. It comes naturally. The evidence of original sin in us is to just look at children. Parents, you don't have to teach your children to do wrong. That comes naturally. It's our job as, as parents to instruct them in what is right and good and point them in that direction. Evil deeds are the fruit of a mind that is hostile to God. Ephesians chapter 4, 18 through 19, the Apostle Paul describes this natural state in parallel text. He talks about unbelievers. He says, they are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, and to practice every kind of impurity. You see, when there's no fear of God in the heart, when the heart is alienated and the mind is darkened, there's a sense where you just do whatever you feel and whatever you want. There's, there's no limits or constraints because you're driven by the senses. You're driven by the flesh. You're driven by what feels good. And when hedonism is the only dominating principle in your life, it's a slippery road to destruction. There is a natural repulsion to God in our sinful nature. We're at war with him. And you see this conflict of this relationship between man and God is two ways. Yes, we're at war and we're at enmity with God, but, but God is also at war with us. God is angry with sin. God hates sin and God punishes sin. God does not tolerate sin. And so therefore, there is this conflict between man and God. And unfortunately, as much as we'd like to think we're going to win, we will lose. I, I, was, um, I was watching briefly last night um, the movie Gravity by uh, um, I, I, Sandra Bullock plays the role of an astronaut. She's stranded in outer space. And there was one scene where, where you could just look out in outer space and it's just endless, endless uh, infinity of stars and galaxies and uh, recently William Shatner uh, took a, a cruise to outer space on Elon Musk's one of his rockets uh, and he got a taste of outer space yes Captain Kirk he actually really went into outer space and and he came back and they, they asked him about it. he says it was horrible it's dark it's it's a void it's it's just there's death. There, there, there's something about being in other words he wasn't intrigued by it. he was horrified and he looked back to earth and he saw life this bright blue globe. And I went to bed thinking last night, it's amazing when you think about it, that we are suspended in the middle of outer space on this floating globe. We don't feel it. We don't feel the earth moving. We don't feel the revolution. We're just, everything seems normal, but we are like a microscopic speck of dust in the grand scam of the universe. And we shake our fist at the one who created it all. When you think about sin, it's really... Insanity. So the hostility runs both ways. What's the solution? If there's no solution, if there's no reconciliation, the war just continues, the conflict escalates, alienation continues, and that alienation follows us into the next life. We're separated from God forever in eternal destruction. But, and again, another but now, God is gracious. Right? God doesn't leave us into this, into this 
horrible abyss of, of alienation. But God intervenes. Verse 22, and he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach him. So in these words, we could describe the new state. We are reconciled. We were once alienated. We are now reconciled. We were once separate. We are now one with God. And that's what the word atone means. It means to be at one with, at one with God. And Christ is our atoning savior. Apart from Christ, peace with God cannot be achieved. And through his death, we have a healed relationship with God the Father. It is critical we do not miss the central focus of Christ. Notice in the earlier verse in 19, it says that, or verse 20 says, through him, that is Christ, we, he has reconciled to himself all things, whether on heaven or earth, and the peace is made by the blood of his cross. Circle back to our text in verse 21, and Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying that through his body of flesh, we are reconciled. In other words, it was absolutely necessary for the Son of God not only to become a man, but for him to die for us. Death was the requirement to bring peace between us and God. You see, because remember, what did God say to Adam? In the day you eat of the fruit, you shall die. Romans 6.24 tells us the wages of sin is death. God cannot change his law, his decree. And so he sends his son to this world and Christ, the exalted son of God, becomes or incarnates, becomes God dwelling among men. The word of God became flesh. As Colossians 2.9 tells us that in him, the fullness of deity dwelled bodily. This theme recurs in the book of Colossians. And this asks us the question, why is it necessary for the incarnation? The body of flesh is a reminder that Jesus had to become a man in order to mediate for us. See, in order for reconciliation to take place, we needed a mediator who could perfectly represent both parties, right? So we need someone to stand in the middle, someone to stand in the gap. In the Old Testament, God had mediators like Moses. He stood in the gap between Israel and Jehovah. And so, and so when Israel sinned, it was it was Moses who pleaded and interceded on behalf of the people. But he was a man, and he died. And so he was insufficient. We need a mediator, someone to stand in the gap, and that's who Jesus is. Jesus perfectly represents God to us because he is God in the flesh. Jesus says to Philip, you want to know who God is? Look at me. The very things I say are the very things the Father tells us. We can know God through Jesus. He is the perfect and exact representation of God. He lived his life in perfect accordance with the will of God. He showed us what true living is, what it is to live a life pleasing to God, to live in the will of God. But more importantly, he died for us too. He didn't just live for us, but he died for us so that through him we may have life. But he also represents us to God. That's what the incarnation comes. It was necessary for Jesus to become a man so that he could become one of us and represent us to God the Father. You see, when the Lord became man, he experienced everything of what it is to be a man. He experienced temptation, but he did not sin. He experienced pain and suffering. He experienced poverty. He experienced need. 
He experienced even on the cross, I thirst. Jesus knew the agony. He knew the misery of being a human being under, the, under a sin-cursed world. And he did that so that he could sympathize and be a sympathetic high priest for us, representing to us, uh, to God the Father, interceding for on our behalf for all ages. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's the beauty of it. He gave himself as a ransom for all so that all who would believe in him can have peace with God and be reconciled in a relationship with God. But death was necessary. It is the only adequate payment for sin. And Eden, when God dealt with Adam and Eve and Satan, at the end of the day, they were banished from the Garden of Eden. But God showed mercy. We're told that he took the skins of animals and covered their nakedness. There's an image there that in order to cover their guilt and their shame, a death had to occur, a substitutionary death. They didn't die, but the animal died in their place and the skins covered their nakedness and their shame. And we have the birth of what, what we develops as the substitutionary atonement system. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people in Israel were commanded to bring animal sacrifices to the temple and that you placed your hand on that sacrifice and in a sense transferred your guilt and your shame and your sin to the animal and the animal became a sin bearer. That animal died in your place. And through its blood, right, Leviticus 17 tells us, 1717, that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Why? Because in blood is life. And because sin brings death, you need life to cure it. Death must, a death must occur in order to satisfy the demands of sin, and then life must be given. Well, Jesus became the fullness of that. That's why when John the Baptist beheld him coming into the Jordan River, he said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Christ becomes the, 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 fest, the, the, the sacrifice for us. He becomes our sin bearer, our substitutionary sacrifice. Our sins were laid on him. He bore our sins and he died in our place. And so therefore, through his death, we have peace with God. Through the blood of the cross, we have peace with God. Romans 5, I think, captures it so well in expressing the benefits of Christ's atoning work. It tells us in Romans 5, therefore, verse 1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Think about that word access. Not only do we have peace, but we have access to God. We have direct communion with the Lord. There was a time in Israel when if you wanted access to God, you had to come into the temple and present your sacrifice and only the priest once a year could enter the Holy of Holies. And in that time, he would hope that God didn't strike him dead. Access was denied. Through Jesus Christ, we have direct access to God the Father. So why should we fear death? I thought about this the other day. We're all going to die sooner or later. I was thinking of my grandfather. He died 20 years ago. 
He was 88 then. He'd be 108 today. And I miss him a lot. But I thought he lived a full life. He was born, he came into this world. He was a young man. He served in the military. He owned his own business. He got married. He had three kids. He had grandkids. He owned a nice house. And he got old and he got sick and he died. And that is all of our lot. Wherever you are, whatever stage of life you're in, we're all heading to the same place. Death is a frightening thing if you don't know God, but through Jesus, death does not have to be something we're afraid of because he conquered death. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 tells us this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, this is why Jesus became a man. He likewise partook of the same things that through death, He might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We don't have to fear death. Death is just the process we must go through to obtain a greater life. Thirdly, our lives presented before God. What does our future look like? We looked at our past. We looked at our present realities. But what does the future look like? Well, it tells us here that in the future, we are going to be presented before God, holy and blameless and above reproach. This, this, these, this language here, present and holy and blameless or spotless, it gives the connotations of, again, we're going back into the temple of a, of a worshiper presenting his sacrifice before God, and it must be spotless without blemish. It must be pure and whole. Well, we know Christ was that spotless lamb of God, and he was presented uh, for us on our behalf. So how is it that Christ presents us before God? Well, the, the key word here, it says above reproach. This is a legal word. Not a, this is not a, a cult word. This is a legal word, and it means without accusation. Taken together with a parallel text, we could see where this is pointing. It says in Ephesians 5, 26 through 27, that Christ may sanctify her, that is the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. Oh Lord, you see what the future is? Is that this is speaking about judgment day. It's speaking about the final judgment and that God will present us before himself. We will be presented by Christ as holy and pure and spotless. He has cleansed us and he's renewed us by his atoning death on the cross. How you ask? I mean, we still have a lot of sin in us, right? We're works in progress. It's not our holiness. It's the holiness of Jesus that's been given to us. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it tells us, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Our sins were burdened and placed on Jesus and his righteousness was given to us as a gift credited to our account so that we could stand before God with confidence on judgment day. This is our future. That's why we have no fear of death. That's why we can look forward to that day with joy. That's why Paul could say, absent from the body, present with the Lord, and I'd far rather be with Christ. The closer you draw to him, the more you desire to be in his presence. We have a grand future. 
Now, sometimes doubts come in, right? But doubts are a result of what? Our own failure, our own sin. That's because we're looking to ourselves. And we look at our own inadequacies, our own failures. And again, what we're doing is emphasizing too much what we are doing instead of looking at what Christ has done. And that brings me to my fourth point. It doesn't mean we're without responsibility. With great privilege comes great responsibility. With a great gift comes a great responsibility. Think of the gift that God has given to you, the gift of salvation. Do you drag it through the mud? Do you toss it aside? I mean, you know, we all know this, right? When your kids are little, you buy them a, an expensive toy and then you find it sitting on the floor and you're like, what the, you know, come on, put that away. Treat that better. You know, have better care for that. But you know what? It's the same thing with us. We've been given a great gift by God. How do we treat that gift? Do we care for that gift? Are we responsible for it? Because notice what it says. He'll present us holy and blameless above reproach before him, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Notice the gospel is the center of it. Don't shift from it. But if, the conditional statement is if you continue in your faith. And the assumption is not everybody continues in the faith. I became a Christian in 1995. I've had a long journey. I've had a lot of grievances in my path. You know why? I've seen many people who've started the Christian journey and are not with us no more. A lot of people I know over the years who, who make great professions of faith and but they're not continuing in the faith. They've forsaken the faith. They've given up. They've walked away. They've renounced. They've denied God. And I, every time it happens, I'm baffled. I'm like, how could this be? And then I say, oh, God, but for the grace of God, there go I. That could be me. That could be you. It could be any one of us. You see, I think that although we know God is faithful and that he will finish the work he's completed, it's a reminder that we ought not to be lax. We ought not to be careless. We ought not to be negligent and neglect such a great salvation, but we need to continue in the faith. The Colossian church was being assaulted by heresies, and, 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 and as we'll get in that in chapter 2, heresies are a way of, of getting people away from the faith, but, but there's other ways we can uh, uh, apostatize and fall away. Uh, it could be sin when we allow sin to come in our lives. We don't deal with it and it, it festers and grows and we, we love that sin and we cherish that sin and, and, and you, before you know it, you're far removed from God. Your heart and your mind have changed and you feel like your old ways again. There's that hostility and alienation because that's what sin does. Sin separates you. You can go through difficulties. Trials could do one or two things. It could draw you closer to God or it could drive you from God. There have been times when I've been under such pressure, I'm like, oh, should I just walk away and give it all up? Where's God when I'm going through this? Have you felt that way? I know I have. Let me say this. It's not how well one begins. It's how we finish that matters. Paul says, I've counted the cost. I've finished the race and fought the good fight. I hope when I get old and when I'm at my death's doorstep, I could say the same. I hope I can persevere to the end and I pray. I pray as a pastor for all of you that you persevere to the end. It's a race. It's not a, this is not the sprint. This is a marathon. And there's gonna be times where you just wanna throw in the towel and stop running, but we gotta run the race. We gotta fight the good fight and persevere. Remember, it is God who strengthens us. We have to continue in the faith. How do we persevere in the faith? 
both positively and negatively. Positively, it says by being steadfast and stable. Negatively, by not being shifting from the gospel. That, that word steadfast is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's themilio. It means establish. It means, to, it means building upon a solid foundation, a sound foundation. A builder would know this. A, a building is only as good as the foundation that it's built on. It highlights the need that Christians need to be firmly established and planted on secure footing. There is only one foundation for us, and that is Christ. He is the cornerstone. It is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It is the word of God. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is built for you in his excellent word. The foundation of our faith in the Bible. I can tell you this much. Every time I see people fall away from God or they abandon the faith, you know why? It's because they, they, they don't take the Bible into their lives no more. There's no more Bible intake, no more, no more scripture. It's, they put the Bible on a shelf, it's collected dust. When you are in his word, it's the foundation you build your life on. Didn't Jesus say this in Matthew 7, 24, 7, 24 through 27? He says, everyone who hears my words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. The rock is the hearing of God's word and the doing of God's word. That's the foundation. That's the rock. That's, that's the stable ground that we build our life upon. If you're building your life on all the you know, transient thoughts and philosophies of the world, you'll just flow with it. Stable and firm, another building metaphor, and it means that, that we cannot help to see here that, that it's, it's a strong, uh, um, a resilient life. Continuing God's word is in, in hearing and doing the word is the foundation which we build our life. And finally, finally, it's not to stray or shift from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Oh, man. I bring it right back to where we started. The gospel is the good news. The gospel is the word that the Colossians heard. It's the word that was proclaimed all over the world that Paul was a minister of. It was validated by this, by their transformed lives, by the success in the Roman Empire. It is the gospel for why you are here. It is the good news. It is the good news that tells us that, yes, at one time we were dead in sins and trespasses. At one time we were in darkness. At one time... We were guilty before God, and one time we were deserving of God's judgment. We were, we were, we were in, a, in a strange relationship, but now, but now in Christ, we've experienced the grace of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the blessing of God through Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, we have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's why we go on the street corner and tell people because it's good news and it changes lives and it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it makes people who they were intended to be by God's creative design. It's how we find fulfillment. Just don't swerve from the gospel. Don't shift from the gospel. Keep your focus on it. Those days when you're weak and those days where, where you feel that you're losing faith, where you feel that sin is just coming in your life and you feel guilty and shame, go back to the gospel. The days where you're weak and you, you feel like trials in life just become too burdensome and you feel like I'm alone, where's God in my life? I feel so alone. Go back to the gospel. If God gave his son for you, will he not give you all things? 
There are times when it feels lonely. But remember this. God promised he would never leave and forsake you. He will be with you to the end of the age. I want to end with this. I remember when I was younger, first came to faith. It was a very tumultuous time. And my parents gave me a painting in my room, Footprints. And you know the poem, if you've read it before, but you know, the guy looks backwards and says, I see only one set of footprints. I, I felt as if I was alone through all those difficulties. Where were you, God? And God says, there I was carrying you the whole way. And so I want to encourage you all today, as we look at this, we can rejoice in the reconciliation we have with God. And may that also spur all of you to reconcile with others. I don't know if it's a marriage relationship. I don't know if it's with your children. I don't know if it's with a cousin or a brother or a sister or your mother or father. Whatever strained relationship you have, if God could reconcile with us and God could give his son to sacrifice to reconcile with us, can't we go out of our way? Can't we take one to the chin and reconcile with our family or friends or those we've been estranged with. I know everyone here has a relationship you could think of that you could make peace with that person. God has made peace with you. Go and make peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. You will find true happiness when you do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time and thank you for your word. Your word is true, it's powerful, it's, it's life-giving. And now I pray, dear God, as we hear today, we wouldn't be just hearers of the word, but indeed doers of your word, and that you would receive all the glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.